Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we contemplate your glory, you would open our ears to your word and that you would speak to us now in a way that we can hear. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we spent a little bit of time, uh, I guess, with me apologizing for the fact that oftentimes when we talk about reward in heaven, my tendency is to nuance that idea of reward because it sounds bad to say that the reason that we do good things in this life is because we're hoping to get a reward in the next life. Because as any parent can tell you, the the reason that you should do good is because it's good, not because you'll get a reward for doing it. Parents especially have an interest in that because there's only so many rewards you can dole out for good behavior. And so even though the Bible talks about a reward in heaven, we always want to understand it in its larger context. But When you seek to always understand something in its larger context, sometimes the end result is you you stop hearing the thing that's being said. In the same way, I want to un-nuance another idea as we look at Jesus' words here. And the idea that I want to un-nuance this morning is the idea of righteousness, specifically your righteousness, the the righteousness that uh, you possess or produce in the form of good works. Obviously, whenever we talk about good works, we always want to nuance that. We never want to give the impression that the gospel is just a call to righteousness, that Jesus is just saying, I want you to now start being good, and if you're good enough, then I will accept you. That's not the good news of the gospel. And so we're constantly, whenever this idea of righteousness or good works coming comes up, we, we want to put it in its proper context. But again, contextualization sometimes obscures the thing itself. So context is good. It's important. But we're going to decontextualize a little bit so that we can understand the purpose of good works, the purpose of righteousness that we're called to in Scripture because righteousness gets a bad rap. Righteousness has a bad reputation. From the standpoint of the church, The suspicions that we have about the word righteousness, they are theological. If we talk too much about the need for righteousness, it seems as if we're detracting from justification by grace through faith. It's easy, in fact, when we talk about faith and and grace, to see a call to righteousness as the adversary, as as a, a bad thing in contrast to the goodness of salvation by grace. We imagine that every attempt to lead a righteous life will lead inevitably to self-righteousness. And therefore, we're suspicious 
of calls to righteous living. Instead of encouraging one another to be holy, instead we point towards the holiness of Christ and say, put your trust there. And we do that rightly. You should. And yet, the Bible does say to be holy. It does call us to holiness. And if we ignore that, we create a challenge where all of the passages in which we're encouraged to do good works are kind of pushed off into the margins, ignored. We don't want to do that. From the standpoint of the world in general, righteousness also has a bad reputation because righteousness, from the outside looking in, seems to be like the thing that makes religious people think they're better than everybody else. Righteousness is the word that describes the thing that makes religious people so obnoxious. Because they're so superior and they're so arrogant. They think they're good people. But the reality is, if you've ever known religious people, they're no better than anybody else. In fact, sometimes they're much worse than other people. And so righteousness is a byword for that kind of hypocrisy that seems to be the special province of religious people. Self-righteousness, arrogance, that sort of thing. It's important, though. If we're going to hear the Bible's call to holiness, to good works, if we're going to hear it for what it is, we kind of have to relearn what righteousness means. Because, of course, righteousness is not self-righteousness. Righteousness is not hypocrisy. Righteousness is not arrogance. It's something else. The question is, what is it? Like, how could we think about righteousness? What definition could we use that would allow us to see it for what it truly is and avoid all those misconceptions? Well, the answer is we can use language that we've already learned from Jesus in the Beatitudes. We could think about righteousness the way that he talks about it here. We could think of righteousness as something like showing kindness. Righteousness as showing mercy to other people. Loving other people. Loving our neighbors. Because that's what righteousness is. To fulfill the call of righteousness, to do the good works that Jesus is calling us to, is to show that kind of love, to show that kind of kindness, to extend that sort of mercy and grace, to love our neighbors. Which raises an interesting question, not the one the lawyer had, not who is my neighbor, but another question uh, about not not so much motive as uh, telos or goal, purpose. What am I loving my neighbor for? What is the point of loving your neighbor? What is all of that love meant to accomplish or to do? You ask yourself, who am I loving my neighbor for? There's an obvious answer, which is Jesus. I'm doing everything for Christ's sake, so I'm loving my neighbor for Christ's sake. And yet, love, once you've experienced it, you know love is complicated. And it's possible to love for a variety of reasons, for a variety of sakes. So we love for Christ's sake, but in a sense, don't we also love for our own sake? I mean, isn't there a sense in which when we love one another, when we show kindness, extend mercy toward one another, we can say, I do that for Christ, but in a a weird way, I also do it for myself. Like I derive a benefit from that love. So I do it for his sake, but I find too I do it for myself. But we can go farther than that. Maybe this is the most obvious thing, but don't we also love others for their sake? 
Don't we love our neighbors for the sake of our neighbors? Don't we love the world around us for the sake of the world around us? That's the sense I think that Jesus brings out here as he speaks about salt and light, the way that we are salt and light. He's talking about the way that we love our neighbors, that we love the world for the sake of the world. We can love our neighbor for Christ's sake. We can love our neighbor for our own sake. But that love is never complete. It's never full until we're loving the world for the sake of the world. That's what Jesus shows us here. Because you think about the salt and you think about the light. The salt is for the earth. And the light is for the world. What Jesus is saying you are, you are salt, you are light. Those things he's saying you are, they exist for the world. They exist for the earth. So when you do a little bit of a, a, a recap, and then we're going to shift things a little bit, because if you remember, last time we talked about persecution. And in persecution, you could say there were three players, the, the three that we've been talking about. There's Christ, there's us, and there's other people. But when we talk about persecution, it goes like this. The world persecutes you, and you endure faithfully, and you do it for Christ's sake. You do it out of gratitude for having received the kingdom. So when we think about Christ, ourselves, and the world, we think of it in terms of persecution, that's the way it works. We endure for Christ's sake, what he's done for us. But now there's a shift in the way Jesus is talking, in the way that those relationships work, because here our doing is not for Christ's sake, it's for the sake of the world. The good works that Jesus is talking about here are not performed for our benefits. They're not performed for Christ's benefits. Here, they're performed for the benefit of the world, of the earth, for the world in general, and specifically for those in the world who, through your example, will be called to worship, and who will see and who will glorify your Father in heaven. That's who you do these works for. And so, it can be helpful to us it gives us a way of thinking about good works that explains how it is that, that even if justification is by faith alone, and that our good works don't come into it, that, that our good works still serve a purpose. There's still a place for us to be righteous, to, to be holy. There's a place for us to actually show love. Our good works do not earn the kingdom, because the kingdom can't be earned. It can only be received, but our good works are essential to the kingdom. They are essential to the growth of the kingdom. In the first place, when you think in terms of persecution, as we looked at last time, that good work of faithfulness, faithful endurance, and joy, that's something that we do, that, that we do it for Christ's sake, and it brings glory to him. It fills the world with his glory. But now, in this second sense, as we think about our obedience in general, just good works in general, we see that the good work is something that we actually undertake for the sake of the world. The reason to do good is for the sake of the world. So your good works help the world. And because we have two metaphors, we can see like two ways, two senses in which the good that you do helps the world. And the first one is preservation. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus is speaking here of a way that our righteousness and sanctification benefits the world. And in order to understand how that is, you have to think about the, the properties, the nature of salt. I'm one of those people for whom nothing can be salty enough. Like if you accidentally pour all the salt onto the dish, Lori will say, this is ruined, it's too salty. And I'm like, give it here, it's perfect. There just can't be too much salt. And when you think about salt, that's, that's typically how we think about it as a kind of seasoning, like something you would add to uh, food in order to bring out its flavor or something. And so you might think, well, we are the salt of the earth. We, we bring the flavor to the earth. But Jesus is probably speaking of, of another property of salt that would have been much more central to people's lives at this time, which is the way that salt can be a preservative. By salting things, keeps them from going bad. It prevents the corruption that would ensue otherwise. So if salt is present, if you can add a little salt in or a lot of salt, you can keep things from rotting, basically. You can keep the corruption at bay. And when you think about that, I want you to go back to Genesis 18 and think about a really unusual and interesting chapter in the life of Abraham. This is where Abraham negotiates for the deliverance of Sodom. Now, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, these are are cities who their names have come down to us as synonyms for unrighteousness. And you would expect a righteous man like Abraham finding out that Sodom is going to be destroyed to think it is about time. I would destroy it myself if I could, but I'm glad God is going to step in and do this. But that's not how Abraham reacts. Abraham intercedes on behalf of this wicked city. And he negotiates with God in this way that's really surprising, where he's like, look, you're really just. Surely you wouldn't destroy the whole city if there's like 50 righteous people in it. That wouldn't be fair. And God's like, no, you're right. It wouldn't be fair. If there's 50 righteous people, I won't do it. Then Abraham's like, hmm. Okay, but what if there's only 45? I mean, it would be unreasonable to destroy it for for the the absence of merely five, right? And God's like, yes, okay, I agree with you. And and on and on it goes until Abraham gets it down to just 10. For the sake of 10 righteous men in the city, God will spare the whole. If you think about the logic of what's going on there, it's kind of interesting. The idea that even though the city on the whole is wicked and is deserving of destruction that God would show it mercy, not because everybody in the city straightens up their act, but because in the midst of all that corruption, there, there might be enough righteousness to preserve it. Well, that idea is one that from a gospel standpoint, you can't read a passage like that without getting goosebumps, like of anticipation of what's to come. Because you start to understand the character of God, that it could be that, that despite his holiness, despite his insistence on justice, that for the sake of righteousness of another, God might spare those who in themselves possess no righteousness. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we, despite having no righteousness to make us worthy, are spared for his sake. It also suggests something else, because, of course, we're just talking about a temporal city in history. We're not talking about cosmic salvation here. We're just talking about whether this group of humans will be preserved from destruction because of the righteousness of a few. In other words, 
it's possible for a few righteous to essentially bless the whole by preserving it from the destruction that it deserves. And because of the presence of those righteous people, things will not be as bad as they could be. They will not be as bad as they ought to be. That that's how the salt functions. The presence of that righteousness makes the world better for everyone because things are not as bad as they could be or ought to be in light of God's holiness. That's the quality. That's the way in which we are like salt. By devoting ourselves to righteousness, to the cause of good works, to the kindness, to the love that we've been called to, by loving our neighbors as Christ has called us to do, we make the world a better place in this preservative quality. Although we don't transform the world, we don't change the course of the world, we don't transform our culture, our presence, faithfully enduring and doing good, loving our neighbors the way that we're called to do, that is a benefit. That's something that God looks upon and says, on account of that, I will bless the whole. I will show mercy the whole, and things will be better than they have any right to be. So when we do good, as we're called to do, that's one of the ways we serve and love the world. There's another sense, and it's in the second metaphor, the metaphor of light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, the metaphor It's clear it has to do with illumination, right? Our good works, the works of the faithful, that love, it's a beacon to those who are in darkness. The light of love is a beacon to those who find themselves in darkness. That light, Jesus says, draws them to God. It allows them to see him, to see who he is, not only to see, but to glorify him. In other words, to worship him. So through the example of that love and that kindness, of that mercy, people see God for who he is, and they come to worship him. In other words, they come to put their faith in him, to believe in him. That's the way that we benefit the world in the form of light, that the lives we live draw, illuminate, show who God is, and call others to worship him. That's the sense in which we are light. So Jesus essentially is saying to us to be righteous and to be visible. Be righteous and be visible. It's interesting too, he's not telling you to become salt and to become light. You could read this passage and think, okay, well, this is what Jesus wants me to sort of work up to. Like, I should become salt and light. But Jesus says you are salt and light. Not that you should become them. You already are these things. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So this isn't about becoming what Jesus wants you to be. It's about recognizing and embracing what Jesus has already made you. He has already made you these things. And the risk that he outlines here is not that you won't level up and start doing these things. The risk is that you will somehow uh, fall away from or deny what Christ has made you. The risk is that being salt, you will lose your saltiness. You'll lose your taste. Or that being light, 
you will hide yourself so that you don't illuminate anything. Those are the things to avoid. Those are the things Jesus says that don't make any sense. What good would salt be that that wasn't salty? What good would light be if it were hidden? It makes no sense at all to live that way. Because you are salt and you are light, you must live as salt and as light. Now the metaphors, it should be obvious by now, that these are metaphors for works, right? These are metaphors for good works. Jesus makes it clear in the final verse. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this is not just a sermon, but it's a sermon where Jesus gives the application. He says, in the same way. So he's going to apply the abstractions to your particular case. In the same way that salt is salty, and light is visible, you must be salty. You must be visible. And the way that you do it is through good works. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Christ is telling us how to live. He's telling us we should do good works. We should pursue righteousness through the power of the Spirit with the goal of being a preservative in the world. Of, of extending the boundaries of God's mercy, as it were. And that we should also have a goal of drawing more to worship through our love. Like the kingdom is extended as more and more people come to believe and worship in their creator. And the way that we extend the kingdom here is through love. It's through these good works of mercy that we perform. That means that the purpose of obedience is not self-righteousness. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. It's the opposite of hypocrisy and arrogance. If righteousness is love, loving the world, loving one another, then the righteousness that we're called to, to work on is not for us. It's for them. The life of obedience is a life that is lived for the sake of the world. Every good thing that you've been called to do, every act of love that you have the ability to show, every time you could execute justice, but instead you show mercy to people who haven't earned it, don't deserve it. Every good deed is done for the sake of the world. To be that salt and be that light. Because the world that we're in, it's not what we often imagine. Like the world isn't like the Titanic. Right? Oftentimes, I think the way that we hear the gospel is, is as if the world was a sinking ship. Right? The world is going down like a, a great ocean liner that struck an iceberg. And, and as the world is sinking, we cry out to Jesus, get us out of here. Take us off of this sinking ship. And we imagine Jesus, by his grace, arriving at the side of the boat with lifeboats and saying, hey, jump in, I'll catch you. And that's the good news. That once all of his people have disembarked onto the boat and are in the rafts, we can all paddle off to a safe distance and watch the world go down. But we won't have to go down with it. But that's not the good news that Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, I'm calling you to a life that is for the world. It's as if Jesus has come to our sinking ship. And as we're crying, hey, get us out of here, Jesus says, no, I'm going to save the boat. I'm not going to take you off the sinking ship. Instead, I'm going to put you to work on it. And we're going to right the ship. We're going to remake it. I'm going to make all things 
new. And I'm going to work through you to do this. And the work that I will do through you is a work of love, a work of mercy that will extend to the world around you. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And if that's what Jesus is saying, that there's a couple of things that we need to hear from him as we contemplate what it means to be salt and to be light. Because Jesus says there is a risk. Right? There's a warning in these words as well. Warning not to lose that saltiness, not to hide that light. Jesus is saying don't give up on righteousness because the world needs you to do good. Don't give up on righteousness because the world needs you to do good. Now, that may sound ironic, because isn't it the world that makes it hard to do good? Whenever you resolve at the beginning of every new year that this year you're finally going to be at least a decent Christian, you're finally going to do at least the basic things that, that Jesus has called you to do, then immediately you have to live in the world. The world makes it hard to do those things. The world makes it hard to love. It's bad enough having to, to battle your own weakness, your own sort of inner demons. The world provides so many incentives not to love, not to be kind, not to show mercy. It starts to feel like uh, it's not even worth trying. If the world is going to make it so hard for me to do good, why should I do good at all? Jesus says to us that for the sake of the world, we must keep loving. Even though the world doesn't want it, for the sake of the world, continue to love. And he also says, don't hide what you are, because the world needs the one who made you that way. Don't hide who you are. The world needs Christ, and it's Christ who has made you what you are. The reality is, it's easier to pursue the good if you can pursue the good under the radar. If you can, in a sort of isolated, privatized world, pursue your faith without other people having to be offended by it, without other people having to know, to think poorly of you, it's a lot easier to do the things that Christ has called us to do. We tell ourselves that if the world will penalize us for living righteously, well, the world can't penalize what it can't see. So maybe the way to pursue Christ is to pursue Christ quietly. But Jesus says that makes no sense. Nobody lights a lamp and then hides it. The purpose for lighting the lamp is to set it on some high place where it cannot be missed, where it illuminates the world around it, and it illuminates the one who lit the flame. So for the sake of the world, Jesus says, stay visible. Stay visible so that others can see and believe. It makes sense that Jesus, of all people, would say these things because when you think about Jesus, he embodies these things. Jesus certainly embodied righteousness, and his was a righteousness that was lived for the sake of the world. By his righteousness that we are saved. And Jesus was lifted up on the cross for all to see. There was nothing quiet, nothing that was done secretly in the ministry of Jesus. As the apostles proclaimed when they began to spread the news of Christ throughout the world, this wasn't done secretly. It was done in the open, and we beheld it. We could see Christ was righteous. Christ was visible. He was salt. He was light. If we're to follow him, then we must be salt and light too.
But remember, He calls us to be salt and light for the sake of the world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.